Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Perhaps one of the most familiar verses, uh, passages in all of the scriptures. Perhaps also one of the greatest theological statements in the scriptures. So if you would turn to Philippians chapter 2, I'll begin reading at verse 1. Hear now the very word of God. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that by Your Spirit You would open up Your Word to us. That we would not just read it, not just hear it, but Lord, that we would understand Your Word. That we would apply Your Word to our life. That we would grow in Christ Jesus even by the means of grace that You have given to us, Your Holy Word. Lord, Please bless your word to us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we try and teach lessons to others or instruct others in the way in which they are to live or to walk, there is a dreaded and formidable opposition that can be put against it a resistance that is difficult to overcome, an objection that is hard to get around. And it goes something like this. But I don't know how. I don't know how to do that. What do you mean? You know, you've seen this. Parents and your children, you ask them to do a simple task and they don't know how. Wives, you've wondered why your husbands have no knowledge of how to do things that should be simple. And then oftentimes they will back it up by a very poor performance at executing your instructions. But ladies aren't immune from this either. It can happen in different ways. In our household, it often works around a computer as something needs to be fixed and I come in to take care of it because people don't know how. Well, that's also true in spiritual things, but it's much more deadly 
to put up this resistance of, I don't know how to obey the word of God. And you see, Paul understood this because he was a pastor. You'll recall that last week, as we looked at unity in the church, Paul gave a very direct command. He said in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And we can almost hear the echo reverberating through the meeting room at Philippi. But Paul, we don't know how. What does that look like? Surely, this isn't something that can be done. Paul takes the time here to almost literally break into song. This passage from chapter 2, verse 5 through verse 11 is accounted one of the earliest hymns of the church. It has a poetic quality about it. It is theologically deep and astute. But what I don't want you to forget as we plumb the depths of who Jesus Christ is, that the reason Paul is saying any of this is to answer the question, how do I do this? How do I live the Christian life the way I'm supposed to? How are we to be a church that God would have us to be? You see, theology has a purpose. Theology informs ethics. And that's what Paul is going to show us this morning. First, as we see the person of Christ, he starts by describing for us who Jesus Christ is to make his point emphatically. And then he tells us what this mind of Christ is that we should have. So he tells us who Jesus is and what his mind, what his attitude, what his life purpose is. And then he issues to us the call of Christ to follow after that, to literally have that mind that Jesus has. And so let us then look this morning first at the person of Christ before we move on to the mind of Christ and hear the call of Christ on our life. Let's look at the person of Christ. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Oftentimes, we take who Jesus is so for granted that we forget where in the Bible we can go to find a good concise, encapsulated description and definition of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul does that exactly right here. There are classic locations to prove doctrines. And Philippians 2, verse 5 and following is one of them. You will see it used as a proof text over and over again. Perhaps you have even described this passage to someone who was seeking out the faith, to someone who had not come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but wondered who he was and is. Well, Jesus is first and foremost God. Now, I want you to notice that I have said Jesus is God. Not that he was God and is no longer God. Jesus is and has always been God. And Paul says this very plainly for us. He says, although Jesus was in the form of God. Now, if we read this quickly, we might say, Paul, you could have been a little sharper with the editing pencil here. You know, was form of God? That makes it sound almost like he's not really God. What are you trying to say here, Paul? But this is where we benefit from being students of the Bible. The word here for was is not the ordinary verb to be. 
There is a verb to be in every language. And if you've done any study in any language, Spanish, French, Latin, Greek, any language, you know that the verb to be is the most irregular verb in the language. It's because it's the most common. If you think of our own, I am, you are, he is. It's very difficult for children first learning grammar to understand the verb to be. It's a very common word. That common word is not used here. You see, Paul actually uses a word that has strength to it. What he's saying is, it's stronger than that he is God. There is no doubt that he is God. It is a part of the essence of Jesus Christ that he is God. We might put it this way by way of illustration. Paul is saying he really and truly is God. It's a very strong statement. And it continues on with the way he describes this word form. You see, when we think of forms, we think of perhaps things we fill out at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles or college applications or paperwork for the census. We think of things that aren't that important. They just they have a, a form to them. They're kind of a shape. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Here, the word for form is something that never changes. It is the internal essence of a thing, even if the outer shell does appear to change. Anyone who has ever studied at any point in time a frog understands this. Frogs look different over the length of their life, don't they? They're little things, unimportant things, but when you first look at a frog... As a tadpole, it looks nothing like it does as it begins to grow into an adult frog. And then, especially as it grows to full maturity, it might bloom into something that is not quite so nimble, but rather big and heavy. But it's always been, and always will be, a frog. It's also true of people. We retain the nature of being a man in the generic sense of man or woman whether we are a baby who cannot walk or whether we are a teen who is seeking to get used to the arms that are longer and the legs that work differently or whether we're an adult male or even after the back doesn't exactly hold up as well as it used to. You see, the outer shell may change. The hair may get a little bit more salt, a little less pepper. But... It doesn't change who we are. That's what Paul's saying about Jesus here. Jesus never changes. The author of the Hebrew put, Hebrews puts it this way, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always God. And Paul is in good stead here, describing Jesus as God. For example, if we were to turn... To Colossians chapter 1, we would see Paul describing Jesus as the creator of the universe by whom everything in existence came into existence. But more than that, he is the one that keeps every single thing in existence. The reason, beloved, that you do not fly apart and become a puddle of goo at the seat of the chair is because the Lord Jesus Christ holds you together by the power of His Word and His will. He preserves everything that is in existence. 
Paul also is repeating just what John has said in John chapter 1. Where John writes that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is not only the Creator, He is in existence before creation. He is the uncreated Creator. He is the living God Himself. And this has application for you and for me as we understand the will of God and as we understand the knowledge of God. For the author of the Hebrews in chapter 1 describes Jesus Christ being begotten of the Father, above all the angels, who exists and sits on the very throne of God. This is the testimony of the Scriptures throughout. It's something that was also obvious as our Lord walked around. Not because, as in some false depictions, He walks around with a a, a ring of light above His head, showing that He's... Jesus, so you could pick him out of a crowd in a photo. No. It was the way he lived, the way he acted, and what he said. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 10. You see, Jesus, the way he spoke and the way he lived made his claims to be God obvious. Beginning at verse 22 of chapter 10, our Lord begins to describe how he and the Father are one. Verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him. And said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so the Jews look at him and they said, You know, you must be claiming to be a very good teacher. Like, say, Buddha. Right? You must have good ethical teachings that we can follow. Jesus, you know... He's a good guy, one amongst many. No! Verse 31, they pick up stones to stone him. And the Jews answer in verse 33, We're going to stone you. It is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Language that's reminiscent of Philippians chapter 2. You see, that he had equality with God. You make yourself equal with God, is what the Pharisees are saying. It's nearly the same word. One is an adjective in neuter form. One is an adjective in masculine form. But they're basically the same word. So you see, even the Pharisees saw the truth of Paul's statement because of the life that Jesus lived. That Jesus is God. But he's more than God. You say to yourself, how can someone be more than God? Jesus is. Because he's also man. You see, not only was he in the form of God, but he took on the form of a servant. 
being made in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ is also man. And this is critical and important to our life as a church. Without the Lord Jesus Christ being fully God, without Him being fully man, there is no hope. If you do not believe that Jesus is God, and you do not believe that Jesus is man, you should give up. You should agree with Paul that we must eat and drink for tomorrow we die, for nothing means anything. Because you see, it is only because Jesus is God and only because Jesus is man, that there is any hope that we would have forgiveness of sins. John puts it this way in 1 John chapter 4, very strongly. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. You see, this is a test of orthodoxy amongst the tests for orthodoxy. Jesus is man. It's the reason why the scriptures go into such detail in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke, where they describe person by person, father by father, all the way up to Adam the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you think that was included, beloved, so you could stumble over odd names at Christmas time? No. It's included to show us that there is no doubt, not beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus Christ is truly man. Now think about that. That means that God, as we'll see in a few minutes, may die. The one who is life can die. The one who doesn't have a body like men can have blood that is shed for his church, as Paul describes in Acts chapter 20. The one who is above death itself lives and dies. And if we think about it, we think about the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ in what he had to give up. Paul describes this for us, that he did not consider this equality with God something that was to be grasped, that was to be held onto, but rather he humbled himself. Now, most men describe their greatness by what they can get. I have two boats. I have three vacation homes. I have a seven-figure 401k. I have seven children. I have five wives over in Africa. But not our Lord Jesus Christ. His greatness is so great, it can only be understood by us in terms of what he gave up for us. Because he possesses everything. How can you begin to list the riches that are Jesus Christ's? You can't. And so if we think about what he gave up, he gave up heavenly glory. Beloved, what you think on, what you dream about, living in mansions of glory, 
being reunited with loved ones, being in eternal blissful communion, what you long for more than anything else in Christ. Jesus gave up for you. Can you believe that? Can you comprehend that? He gave up the glory that was His in heaven. He gave up authority. Now, not that Jesus didn't have authority amongst men, not that He ceased to be God, but Jesus was made and born under the law that He might obey the law, that we might be redeemed, that our sins might be forgiven. And what that means is not just that Jesus did nice things so you can go to heaven and not to hell. It means that our Lord Jesus Christ, the lawgiver Himself, submitted Himself to the Father. That he made a life's work of saying, not my will, but your will be done. If you dwell on that, it puts a little bit of a different spin on discussions and unity in the church, doesn't it? Makes us a little bit more reluctant to say, well, I don't really care what you think. I think it should be this. And the word should echo in our brain. Not my will, but your will be done. He gave up all the rights that he had. He submitted himself to do the work the Father had given to him. He had every right not to be criticized. Every right not to be mocked. Every right to be worshipped. As he puts it in John, he had every right to call down legions of angels to punish those who dared mock the Creator of the universe. But he gave that all up. For you and for me. He gave up. This is such a thing to give up. I don't know how to describe it to you. He gave up a perfect relationship with the Father. He was separated from the Father by the cross. Can you imagine that? A perfect, eternal relationship with His Father. And He gave that up for us. I won't like being away from my wife for a week to go to General Assembly. I'll probably about Wednesday afternoon get cranky with John. But that's okay. He'll be cranky with me probably sooner because their marriage is longer and stronger. But our Lord Jesus Christ gave up a relationship with the Father. And so the question comes to you, if you would have a church that is united, if you would live a life that follows after Jesus, what would you give up? Would you give up praise for unity in your church? Would you give up being noticed for unity in your church? Would you give up efficiency for unity and love in your church? You see, that's the mind of Christ Jesus. You see, our Lord understands everything that you are going through because part of being a man is that He suffered all the effects of the fall. You see, we tend to think of Jesus as being just like Adam because the Bible does talk about Him as the second Adam. But He's not. He's greater. You see, Adam was created in a world that was perfect and without sin. Jesus was born into a world ravaged by sin and the fall. He experienced every effect of the fall but one. Sin. 
He was perfect. But people still cut him off in traffic. People still whispered about him around the corner. People still didn't listen to the good advice he gave. He had every effect of sin. And do you think you have it bad? Because your wife or your husband won't listen to you? Or because your boss isn't understanding enough? Or because America is a place where morality is going downhill? Imagine our Lord Jesus Christ walking daily through the cesspool that is the sin of man. Jesus is not just God, but He's man. And once we understand and know who Jesus is, we can understand what He is doing, what His work is. And Paul describes this by means of a figure. He says, the mind of Christ. Now, this is another small commercial for consecutive executive, consecutive expositional preaching. Because you know what this word means here, mind of Christ. This isn't the first time we've seen it. We've seen it over and over again. It's that same word when Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you. It's the same word that when Paul says, I would that you would think the same things. It's the exact same word. It's one of Paul's favorite words here in this chapter. He uses it more than anyone else in the scripture. And so this mind of Jesus is not a supercomputer that knows all the answers and rattles off pi to the final digit. This mind of Christ is an attitude, a mindset, a way of thinking that leads to a change of life, that leads to action in life. And what does this look like? Do you know what it looks like? Look at chapter 2, verse 4. The mind of Christ looks like not looking to your own interests and looking to the interests of others. You see, Paul is telling us about this mind of Christ. But you see, oftentimes what we do is we pull chapter 2, verse 5 through verse 11 out and we put it on a cross stitch, which is beautiful, or we write it as our life verse and we take it out of its context. It comes right after verse 4. You see, the mind of Christ is first and foremost not looking to your own interests. That's what it means when the Bible says he made himself nothing. It doesn't mean he ceased to exist. It doesn't mean he emptied himself of all godhood. It means he didn't look to himself. He made himself nothing. He put himself behind everyone else. You see, this verb here, to make oneself nothing, or to empty oneself, is only used here in the Bible. And so that means that it's been argued about for hundreds or thousands of years. And lately... This is a wonderful proof text for liberals who want to prove Jesus wasn't God. They look right here and they point and they say, look, it says right here, Jesus isn't God. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself of God. Like Jesus is a big gas tank and he emptied himself of all the God gas and he put in human diesel. Now that's preposterous, isn't it? It's, it's humorous. Well, so is a liberal supposition that Jesus stopped being God. You see, Jesus made himself nothing, not by subtraction, but by addition. That's hard for us to understand, isn't it? You see, when we add on things, 
We become more. We become greater. But when you are God, you are already in possession of everything in the universe. You are the creator and sovereign of the universe. It is only by adding something, namely here, humanity, that you could become less. It's addition. It's subtraction by addition. It's kind of the opposite of addition by subtraction that you've seen in in an arena usually of sports. You make the team stronger by taking something away. Well, here Jesus is made nothing by the addition. And the word here doesn't mean that he lost who he was. The word here for made himself nothing actually means that something is deprived of its proper place and use. It would be like using the horse that won the Kentucky Derby to plow your field. You could do it. I'm not really sure why. Or the, or the opposite, taking one of those gigantic Budweiser Clydesdales and trying to jam it in the gate at the Preakness. It's not using it for its proper use. Calvin puts it this way wonderfully. He says that the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ was not lost. It was rather concealed. And when we think about this, we realize all of what Jesus did is coming down from a high and lofty level. Everything that he did was a condescension. Now, that has application for you and for me. Why? Because we're on the level with Jesus and we need to come down to other people? No. It's because as you live life, you too must descend from a high and lofty level. Because if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are heirs to the kingdom. You are children of God. You are a part of the people of God. You have great and unbelievable privileges because of the grace of God. And so as we relate to one another and as we relate to the world, we must also come down from that high and lofty place. From that place where we will dwell forever because God has placed us there. Jesus made himself nothing, but he also did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He did not jealously guard his rights. That text alone proves to us no matter what science could say, that Jesus is not an American. That's the American cry, isn't it? But I have my rights, and I'll sue you to get them. Jesus did not stand on his rights. He didn't grasp it. He didn't hold on to it at all cost. He was co-possessor of the divine glory. Now, To give you an idea, a word picture of what this means, something to be grasped. Again, this is a word, Paul's using words that aren't used anywhere else in the Bible because of the nature of what he's trying to describe. This thing to be grasped is something that you hold on to with white knuckles. You ever done this with one of your kids? Give me that. And you have to go finger at a time. That's a thing to be grasped. Maybe some of you remember the last, and and not the best, Indiana Jones movie. Where at the end of the movie, the the woman has the Holy Grail, and she's hanging on a cliff, and Indiana Jones says, drop the Grail and take my hand so I can save you. She can't let go of it. 
Even to save her own life, she can't let go of the things she has. And she falls to her death. You see, Jesus, even though by every right, by every reality, He could have continued to possess all of the rights and privileges of God. He did not consider it something to be grasped and to be held onto because he had other interests in mind. How loose is your grip on the world? This is where Paul gets uncomfortable. How tight is your grip on money, beloved? How tight is your grip on your time? How tight is your grip on your rights? You see, if your grip is white-knuckled around your money, your own time, and your own interests, we will never have unity in this church. Ever. Because the church is the bride of Christ to reflect Jesus Christ. But how freeing and liberating is it to know that if we loosen our grip, that Jesus provides everything. That we don't need to be white-knuckled about our lives and our marriages and our children. That we can be free, giving them up to the Lord Jesus Christ. Allowing Him to use everything we have and we are for His purposes, for His reason, for His glory. That is when a church becomes dangerous in the world. Not grasping. Jesus did not look to his own interests, but he also looked to the interests of others. It wasn't just that he was constantly walking around and saying, well, after you, pardon me. No, he was actively involved in looking after others. Paul puts it this way, that he took the form of a servant. Now, this word form here is the same word form that's used form of God. You see, Jesus took on the reality of being a servant. It was not a role he played when it was convenient or when others were watching. It was something that was a part of his very life and being. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came as a ransom for others. We see this in action in John 13. Some of you know the passage well where our Lord is with the disciples. And he says to them, Now I have to wash your feet. And the king of the universe stoops down and does not the, but one of the most disgusting jobs in antiquity. You see, in antiquity, often if, if you were wealthy, you would have sandals that would allow dirt to get all over your feet. If you weren't, you would not even wear shoes. And there would be all sorts of things all over your feet. Jesus stops to wash the feet of his disciples. Did you get any more pointed than that? One of those disciples was Judas. Have you ever thought about serving, washing the feet of those who mock you? attack you, agitate you. That's the mind of Christ. This is what it means to be made nothing. How will you serve in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? What will you do to take the form of a servant? 
How will you have this mind think this way, the way the Lord Jesus Christ thinks? Because this mind of Christ is a way of thinking about what is important, what principles drive you, what purpose you are going toward. Another vignette of a way in which we see the mind of Christ, you can look at this afternoon. The Old Testament isn't silent on this. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us what it means to have the mind of Christ. To pour out your soul unto death, Isaiah says. Chapter 53, verse 12. It's very similar to being to making yourself nothing. This is the mind of Christ. Well, where does this lead us then? Where do we go from here? We go in conclusion here, briefly, to the call of Christ. What is the call of Christ then on our lives? The first thing is obedience. Christ's life was one of obedience. His obedience did not begin at the cross. It began at the beginning of his life. And so Jesus is the Adam in reverse. Now think about it. Paul says that our Lord didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And Adam said in the garden, Ooh, give me that fruit. I can be like God. Our Lord was obedient in everything. And Adam said, No, God, not going to obey the one command you gave me. Our Lord Jesus Christ, through His life, brought life. Adam's life brings death. Jesus is obedient where Adam was not. And this obedience was of a voluntary nature. We've talked about this before. We all know when our children are obeying and they have no interest in obeying. You can usually see it in the face. Sometimes you see it in the way things are done. But it's not limited to children either, right? There are husbands and wives and parents that have cleaned up by moving things. Slam! I'm not going to do this. I'm going to pick this up. Bang! I'm going to go. Right? Every motion, it becomes obvious that you're doing it, but you know what? You're going to make everybody know you don't want to do it. Not so our Lord. Look at verse 7. He made himself nothing. Voluntarily. And the Greek is even stronger. It says, Himself He made nothing. Look again at verse 8 here. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself. The emphasis here is on the voluntary nature of our Lord's obedience. And He had to actually learn obedience. Now, I know that sounds hard to believe when we're talking about God Himself, but when you are God, you don't have to learn obedience. You don't have to obey. You are the authority. But by voluntarily submitting Himself as the God-man, as the mediator of the covenant, Jesus learned to obey the law perfectly. Maybe that's why we don't understand that He had to learn obedience Hebrews 5, verse 8. Because when we learn things, we botch it up the first four or five times. Not so our Lord. Every instance, perfect. Why did He do this? For you. For me. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might be rich. Does that drive you as you think about witnessing to others? Do you put yourself second so that others might be rich? 
so that others might come to know the gospel, might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might be built up. This is the mind of Christ. This is the purpose of obedience. It is not checking a box. It is life. Are you willing to be that way? Are you willing to have that kind of obedience? Because you see, to take us back, this passage is not primarily a theological passage. I know it's taught in every seminary. I know it speaks of the richness of who Jesus is and that He's God and that He is man and what it means for Him to be the God-man. But the primary thrust of this passage is not theological. It is ethical. Paul is seeking to drive us to action and to thought and to purpose by telling us who Jesus is. This is not a passage you can stand to the side on and observe. Jesus was God. He was man. This is the kind of passage that you have to immerse yourself in. Roll up your sleeves, up past your elbow. Not any of this half deal. And dive in. This is an ethical passage because Paul is pleading for unity because he knows unity comes from humility and humility requires the mind of Jesus. This is not given to satisfy our curiosity about who Jesus is. It is meant and given to reform your life. To make you humble. To make you obedient. To make you thankful. That's why Paul tells us who Jesus is. You see, Jesus' call is that we would be obedient and that we would identify just as He identified. He was born in the likeness of men. Now, if you think about that, the King of Glory walked around and people didn't look at Him like He had three heads or like He was a unicorn. You see, He was in the likeness of men. He entered into the reality of mankind. This is something that's applicable then for you and for me. You see, we have to actually live where others live. Those in our church and those in our neighborhood. We cannot just pretend to identify with them. We must live lives like theirs. This is being born in the likeness of men. That's what it also means to be found in human form. You see, Jesus didn't look different from other people. It's one of the reasons why, for example, in Mark 6, they looked at him and they said, isn't this guy the carpenter's son? Because he looked like a carpenter's son. To identify with the people of God. Finally, perhaps the scariest thing, the call of Jesus Christ is not only to identify with him, not only to be obedient, but it is also to pay the price. Because you see, this passage gives us not only a unique view of Jesus, it gives us a unique view of the cross. It's a view of the cross through the eyes of Jesus Christ. You see, His obedience was not just in humbling Himself in the Incarnation. It was not just that kind of simple obedience. We understand that if we think about the Garden of Gethsemane. It was an obedience that Paul says, was up to the point of death. Now, that doesn't mean that he stopped being obedient at death. It means it carried it right smack up to. There was never a moment, 
Never a second that our Lord Jesus Christ was not obedient. You see, he knew the price was high to gain a people. He knew the price was high to do the will of God. And that's true today too. If we would be a shining beacon for the Lord Jesus Christ in Katy, the price is high. You have to give up some rights. You have to humble yourself. You have to put others before you. You have to have the mind of Christ. The real question of whether a church will be effective by the grace of God for the gospel or not is do we think the price is too high? Are we willing to take our obedience only so far and then we stop and look around and whistle? You see, Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, a shameful death. This is the mind of Jesus Christ. In a nutshell, not looking to your own interests, but looking to the interests of others and doing that through pain, through suffering, and doing it for the purpose of God Himself. Is that your hope for your life? For your children's lives? For your families? If it is, and if we have the courage, and if above all we have the grace of God, God can use every one of His children to build His kingdom. 